everyone. One of my mentors uh, said to me something one day uh, in my training, and it really has stuck with me through the years. He said, we all have the task of answering three questions, and if we're lucky, we come to these answers in life. He said, the first question is, I have to find the answer to who am I? That is, who are my people? And the third question is, what is my gospel? What is the good news that brings life to me? And this isn't even in my notes. I just want to say this community helps me answer all three of those things. So I'm so glad to just be here with you all this morning. We're talking about Israelites, Canaanites, and faithfulness to God. If you are looking for an authoritative source document to support authoritarianism, patriarchy, sexism, and the subjugation of women, let me recommend to you the Bible. If you want to document that will legitimize your bloodthirsty, violent shadow side, and even call it righteous, have I got a book for you. If you're looking for support for slavery, racial superiority, the dehumanization of your enemies, you are my friend. If you're looking for a text to provide precedent for ethnic cleansing and genocide, look no further than the most widely read, best-selling book of all time, the book that can be found in most homes and hotels in the United States. Of course, I'm talking about the Bible. We are in a series named Terrible Stories, Old Testament Text We'd Rather Forget, And I spent the week wrestling with the text I selected, combing through scholarly works, reflecting on how these stories have been used like a razor blade in the hands of a toddler. And about midweek, y'all are just getting that? A razor blade in the hands of, just the image in your mind makes you cringe, doesn't it? It's terrible. And I I think that's actually what Einstein said about his colleagues after they invented the atom bomb. He said, we are like children with razor blades in our hands. We don't know what we're doing. I could be off on, I think that's what he said. Where was I? Sounds good. So about, don't distract me. I need focus this morning. (laughs) So about midweek... I began to wonder if this sermon series that we concocted was one of those things that was better in theory than in practice. This has been an intimidating series and bit of scripture to work with. I wondered, is this one of those things where the ideal is so much more beautiful than the reality? We'll see. Hopefully, we find this sermon and this series helpful and fruitful nevertheless. So imagine with me, imagine, it's 700 B.C., So this was a while ago. And we are a tiny country existing barely, just barely living, barely surviving between two competing nations, two world superpowers. And here we are in the middle, an insignificant nothing. Our little country is something of a buffer between their cultures and their power-hungry leaders. They're both always trying to win us over to their side, whether through the carrot or the stick, although it really wouldn't be much effort for them to simply conquer us. We live every day with our future and our existence less and less certain. Imagine, in a sense, we are Israel in 700 B.C. 
Now, imagine our small country gathers together to determine a way out of this. How are we going to survive in this untenable position? We put together a panel of experts to propose solutions, and the first expert stands up and he says, Hello, my name is Warrior. I propose we infiltrate all levels of their government, we assassinate their leaders, we use guerrilla warfare, whatever is needed. We're small, but we're mighty. We are the Spartan 300. Come on, we can survive through this. The next speaker stands up and says, okay, thank you, warrior. Hello, my name is Diplomat. I propose we send envoys with peace treaties to each country. We will have to give significant concessions as each one demands it, but we will survive, and that's what matters. He sits down. The third speaker stands up and says, hello, my name is Retreat. My plan is simple. Tomorrow night, after dark, we pack all our belongings and we leave. We've done it before. We could do it again, and we won't even have Pharaoh's army chasing us this time. I hear there's free land out east. It may be a deserted wasteland, but it'll be ours, and we won't be in this position anymore. The last speaker stands up, the expert, and he says, Hello, my name is Rabbi. We've heard several um, resourceful proposals so far, but they are all misguided. I propose we shouldn't try to overthrow their governments. We shouldn't acquiesce to their cultures and demands. We shouldn't leave. Instead, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, 500 years ago, in fact, our people had just been freed from slavery in Egypt. Yay, some said. Now what? Some others said. Others said, I don't know. Let's ask God. They prayed and they asked God and God told them, now I want you to go to the promised land, which is, of course, the land we are in right now, the rabbi said. Someone spoke up. This land is the promised land right here between these two monstrous nations? This is seriously? The rabbi continued, yes. And God told her ancestors when they got here, they would find cities full of men and women and children. Someone else spoke up. How many people were here when we got here? The rabbi responded, it doesn't matter. I don't know. A million. It doesn't matter. He continued, now, our ancestors were directed by God to drive them out of the land and even to kill them all if needed. What were their names? Someone else asked. I don't know. The rabbi said, it doesn't matter. Let's call them Canaanites. It doesn't matter. Why did they have to leave the land? Another person asked. Ah, finally, the rabbi said, a relevant question. A question that matters. We're getting somewhere. They had to leave the land because they were unfaithful to God. Good, one person said. They probably got what they deserved. The rabbi raised a finger about to say something, but the diplomat interrupted him. Well, why don't we have archaeological proof to support all this? At this point, the rabbi said, they had to leave because they were unfaithful to God. They couldn't stay any longer. Men... Women, children, animals, they all had to go. The warrior spoke up. Was there a lot of blood and screaming? Were there celebrated heroes? Sure, warrior, why not? I like this story, the warrior said as he pulled out a sanding stone and he started sharpening his sword right then and there, which everyone agreed was really weird. 
Why didn't the Canaanites just build a wall, a big, glorious wall? Ah, we have a story for that too, the rabbi said. The people of Jericho did. But walls do you no good when you are unfaithful to God. How big was the wall? Was it solid or see-through? Maybe we can build a better wall. You're missing the point, the rabbi said. It's not about faithfulness to God. The warrior, a spark of excitement in his voice now, he spoke up again. These Canaanites, are there any left to kill? We can be faithful to God again. We can kill the Canaanites again. Kill the Canaanites. Kill the... People began to chat. The rabbi motioned with his hands for the crowd to calm down. Yes, they are still here, in fact. In fact, many alive today, many even in this room right now. I knew it, the warrior said, his eyes darting back and forth. It's me, the rabbi said, and it's you, and it's all of us who are unfaithful to God. Let us turn completely to God, and maybe we will get to stay in this land. As I'm sure you've picked up now, the Old Testament story we're talking about is God's command to the Israelites to utterly destroy, to wipe out, to kill all the Canaanites they encounter in the Promised Land after leaving slavery in Egypt. Jordan read Moses' commands to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, and you've likely read the rest of the story yourself as it unfolds in the book of Joshua that follows. Moses tells them, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he delivers the people over to you, then you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. When you, This reminds me of... Something Ross and I were talking about before service, like at the end of Mortal Kombat, when it flashes on the screen, destroy them, or whatever it's, I don't remember now. Finish him. Finish. That's what God was flashing to them, according to the story. Finish him. If you're like me, you've probably been confused by these stories and wondered how they mesh, how they line up with the God we see revealed in Jesus. It seems a bit disjunctured, don't you think? There are those throughout history that have jumped through hoops to try to justify these stories. They said, hey, God can do whatever God wants, and we have no choice but to call it good. The only problem with this is that that definition of good in no way touches what we understand of goodness. So it's essentially meaningless. It's like saying, I beat you because I love you. Well, you can say that, but I think you're misusing the word love. I think you're misusing the word good when you try to do that. Other people have said that the Canaanites were so completely evil, men, women, children, even their animals, that they had to be destroyed. It was a service to humanity to do this. Tragically, these stories and this argument has been used many times in history for religious justification for atrocities. They were used as justification for the medieval crusades for Catholics killing Protestants and Protestants killing Catholics, for the British brutal colonialism in India, for the United States genocide of Native Americans, much of which we still don't own up to today. They were used, these texts were used for the Rwandan Hutu killing of 800,000 Tutsis in the 1994 massacre, and on and on. These stories 
have supported all of that. A razor blade in the hands of a toddler is what that is. When we approach this story or any bit of sacred scripture, we have to always consider genre. We have to ask, what type of literature is this and what is its intention? The Bible's full of many different kinds of genre. There's theological history, theological poetry, theological law, theological wisdom literature, theological apocalyptic literature, theological correspondence, many different types of literature here, but it's all theology which means its highest aim is to communicate sacred meaning rather than, say, history. These stories are no different. In his book, Laying Down the Sword, Dr. Philip Jenkins, a professor of history at Baylor, says that although these events that we're talking about in Deuteronomy and Joshua, even though they probably happened around 1200 B.C., They aren't actually recorded at that time. Instead, clues such as the use of royal Assyrian language in the text and a lack of archaeological evidence seem to indicate a much later recording, around 700. This is nerdy stuff, I know. (laughs) But this is what the scholars think. It It isn't recorded in 1200. It's recorded 500 years later in 700. So Jenkins and many other scholars believe that this text written 500 years later is when it's recorded. Now, for example, if in a thousand years from now someone uncovers a Shakespearean play, scholars would use the language in it to determine it's probably from the 16th century rather than the 21st century. And likewise, if they found a Cardi B song stuck in the middle of that stack of Shakespearean plays, they would probably date that song to the 21st century rather than the 16th century just looking at the language and the cultural references. So, if Jenkins and others are right, it begs the question, why would 700 B.C. authors write this 12th century B.C. story in this unique way? Well, we know that during this time, the kingdom of Judah was in the midst of a great religious reform movement because Assyria and Babylon and Persia, the world's superpowers, are pressing in on them, about to kill them and crush them. And in fact, these superpowers would eventually conquer the 12 tribes of Israel, sending them all away as prisoners of war. So in that context, it's not hard to see why they would use such strong language, language commanding genocide, language that was nothing short of incendiary. In fact, in these verses, we find the single most terrifying word in the whole Bible, It's the Hebrew word harem, or cherem. I'm not good at the gutturals. It's the word used to describe what the Israelites were supposed to do to the Canaanites, and it's meant, the, the meaning of which is you have to completely devote them to God. You have to sacrifice them. You have to exterminate them and consider it an act of worship to God. It's a terrifying term. It's a terrible term. That's where we find this word. Can you imagine a more dangerous term in the human mind, especially if one is already looking for justification to hate somebody else? You know, it seems like there's something in our psychology that seems to love these kinds of absolutes, that seems to love the opportunity to use absolute power and not have any qualms about it. 
It's amazing how brutal we can be toward our enemies when we are convinced we are fighting and when we are fighting for God. It's just a lot easier that way. We don't have to associate with Canaanites in our lives because, you know, they're simply 100% evil. They're less than human. It's a service to humanity for me to destroy this person, a Canaanite or a Twitterite. There's nothing good in them. They deserve such punishment from God. And in fact, it's my duty to do this. Isn't it nice when the world is so clear-cut, so black and white? In our scripture readings this morning, I also included Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman. See what I did there? Canaanite woman. Nice little pairing, isn't that? Here was a person, a woman, who was considered less than. A woman who represented a people group that the average Israelite might think they were supposed to exterminate. You can even see these dynamics and hear these undertones in Jesus' words and actions. And scholars really wrestle with this story. What does all that mean? But ultimately, it's clear that Jesus names her a Canaanite, an outsider, as the hero of the story and an example of faithful God. Maybe it's not about Israelite or Canaanite. Maybe it's about faithfulness to God regardless. It sure would be easier if Jesus would just stop messing with our neat categories. It sure would be easier if our story about the Israelites and the Canaanites was just a a story about God's command to kill those who are evil rather than looking at how we are all both Israelite and Canaanite. The story is so much more than that, though. Its intention was to confront the people of Israel, prompting them to look at themselves and ask, Oh my God, have I been unfaithful to God? And is that why we're about to be driven from the land? It's not about the Canaanites. It's about me and you and all of us. And if we are unfaithful to God, God's going to remove us from the land too. And if we are willing to hear it this morning, peace, it does the same thing for us. It confronts us in the same way today. I ask you, in a world that is drunk on violence, from our children's programming to our international relationships, what does faithfulness to God look like? In a society where capitalism and freedom are our highest goods, our ultimate aims, our gods. What does faithfulness to God look like? In a world where nationalism is coming to a rolling boil now, and we are told that the foreigners around us are going to be our downfall, what does faithfulness to God look like? In a world where incivility reigns on social media, And it feels so good to socially slap someone in front of the whole world. It feels so good because they are a Canaanite. Well, I ask you, what does faithfulness to God look like? As a small church whose existence is ever threatened by the superpowers around us, a fundamentalism on one side, an apathy toward religion and the sacred on the other side, what does faithfulness to God look like for us this morning? May God ever guide us 
as we strive to figure that out and live that out, as we strive to be faithful to Jesus, the Israelite who admires the faith of the Canaanite, and the one who calls us to be skeptical of easy answers and convenient enemies. Amen.